0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to Studying Media Critically, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Gummer Claire, and today I'm joined by Mark Anthony Neal, who is James B. Duke, Distinguished Professor at Duke University. We'll be talking about his fascinating book, Black Ephemera, The Crisis and Challenge of the Musical Archive, which was published in 2022. Welcome to the show, Mark hey thanks for having me on <laughs> so as always i'm going to start with a biographical question so could you tell us a little bit about your background and your path into scholarship
0: yeah so i was born and raised in the place that we affectionately uh, call the the boogie down bronx uh working class parents uh uneducated at the time um, but a very musical household um in in very different and, and complex ways my dad was a big fan of gospel quartets and quintets, so there was a lot of Mighty Clouds of Joy and Soul Stirrers, Sam Cooke and the Soul Stirrers in particular in the house. Uh, and he also liked that the Hammond B3 guys, uh, so there's a lot of Jimmy Smith and Jimmy McGrath and, and and obviously some B.B. King and, and Bobby Blue Bland there. Um, my mother's listening tastes were a little different. Um, you know, we listened to a lot of Shirley Caesar on the one hand, um, her favorite artist was Aretha Franklin, but there were a lot of the, the soul men of that era, the Teddy Pendergrass, the Al Green, the Luther Ingram, the Isaac Hayes, uh, the Marvin Gaye. In, in many ways, her listening practices were the building blocks of, of the kind of work that I would it ultimately do, you know, as a kind of writer and critic and, and scholar of, of Black popular music. Um, you know, my path started uh, in graduate school at the University of Buffalo, um, you know, uh, where, of course, we tragically, you know, lost so many folks in that shooting, a uh, place that's still very dear to my heart. Uh, but my career began at Xavier University in New Orleans, which is a historically black college university, moved on to the University of Albany and then for a short stint at the University of Texas at Austin. And I've been here at Duke now. Um, in the Department of African African American Studies for the last eighteen years,
1: and and so what drew you to writing this book specifically? I know it builds on some themes that you've touched on in the past, but um, yeah, what what is it about this project?
0: You know, it, it, this kind of idea of archives, um, and it's been something that I've been kind of ticking about in my head, I, I would say for a good fifteen or twenty years. But but I never thought of it as a project about archives. Um, you know, I'm not trained as a historian. Um, so when I hear archives, right, and, and I'm not obviously someone working in museums. So when I hear archive, you know, I think about very traditional notions of archive in terms of boxes and, and stacks of paper and, you know, photos and all those kinds of things. Um, but, you know, what, what I began to realize as I began thinking about this work and, and particularly the earliest moments of this work, Um, was my fascination with with the Stax Recording Company. Um, You know, the well-known, you know, uh, black music label that that specialized in Southern soul, really the Southern soul counterpart to Motown, you know, which I actually would more describe as a rhythm and blues label as opposed to a soul label. Um, But, you know, Stax loses uh, because of a bad contract and situation distribution deal, um, you know, 1967, 1968, Stacks loses their, the totality of their archive, right? Basically lose it to Atlantic Records. And and Al Bell begins this process of rebuilding Stacks, right? And and I realized at some point that what that was was an archival project, right? You know, how do you rebuild the archive from scratch, which is what he did. And, and he did a bunch of strategies from expanding the range of things that uh, that Black music could talk about in terms of infidelity and, and politics, expanding the sound of Black music at the time. So whether that's taking the staple singers from the work they were doing as gospel folk singers um, and making them kind of cutting edge soul and funk artists in the early 1970s to those lush arrangements that we get from Isaac Hayes, you know, beginning with hot buttered soul, which literally changes the sound of soul music, you know, going into the 1970s. Uh, So it was really kind of thinking about all these other different moments of stuff that I've been that have been tossing around in my head. And this idea of black archives helped me to kind of bring all of those ideas together, you know, under one project.
1: So so I'd actually like to start at the end of the book before we dive into the kind of body of it. Because in the coda, you write that for every movement forward, there are necessary returns to the archive, which feels to me a little bit like a kind of mantra that animates a lot of the project. Um, Could you explain exactly what you mean with that phrase?
0: Yeah, you know, it's a couple of things, right? It's, you know, obviously being a scholar of, of black culture, black popular culture, and someone who's also been able to to dabble a little bit in terms of popular journalism as either whether music journalism or cultural criticism. And and reading so much of the work that's being produced now in this moment where in many ways ideas have been democratized, right? You know, so many online sites publishing good and not so good work, um, so many people writing about so many things. And just generally, as someone who who loves the culture and actually loves reading criticism, um, just a sense that as we go forward, that folks who are writing and some of the most visible people writing about Black culture don't actually have a great handle on the archive. Um, and and coming through at this particular time when it's a moment where if you're a young writer, there's no guarantee that your editor is going to be any older than you are, <laughs> right? You know, because all of the seasoned editors have been pushed out of of the uh, out of the industry, right? There, there's no one, there's no you know fail safe system to say you need to look at this, this, and that also because your editor doesn't know either. And, and so, part of it for me was to think about as we as we build this enterprise of black cultural criticism that it's important as we write forward that we continually have a relationship with the archive, with the stuff that's going before. Um, For me as a scholar, it's it's that recognition at that point of my career, you know, I'm 56 years old now, I've been doing this for 25 years, that my value in the enterprise now is not necessarily writing about a new Kendrick Lamar album, right? But actually building out and sustaining the archival work that needs to do that needs to be done, right, to guarantee as f- folks go forward as writers, right, and I'm not just talking about myself, you know, I'm talking about a generation of folks in this regard, that continuously we have to go back and build and feed upon the archive to make sure that the archive can still sustain, you know, the body of work that's being produced going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and you say you're not trained as a historian, but this book, you really, you know, it's meticulously researched and you really draw these... It's the sheer density of connections, I think, that really comes through in a lot of these chapters that, um, again, it really demonstrates the need for this work and the need for that contextual information, I think. Um, And then, so the other kind of focus here is on ephemera. So how are you defining that and what does this focus offer?
0: Yeah, you know, for me, ephemera is this thing, uh, you know, in in the context of the book and talking about archives, the kind of stuff that we don't pay attention to right that we, that we think of as almost throwaway culture you know on the one hand it's it's old black people keeping photographs and other kinds of knickknacks under their bed right and and for folks who do archival work right they're not thinking that there's any value Right. You know, to these things, you know, growing up in the houses I did in the Bronx, you know, my parents had these pens, you know, you know, from the poor people's campaign and all kinds of, you know, in retrospect, stuff that didn't make any sense to me, that didn't have any real connective tissue. Um, And and for me, it was easy to think of that stuff as just kind of excess, as throwaway stuff that doesn't have any value. And I really want to to on the one hand be self critical of myself for thinking about those things that way. You know, part of this book is actually bringing together some of that connective tissue. But the way that blackness more broadly is treated as toss away or throw away culture, right? As ephemeral, literally something that's produced, it gets consumed, and folks move on to something else, right? And you know, I think one of the attributes of black culture that continues to be a challenge. Is this idea of simply treating Black culture as a mass consumable, as simply a form of entertainment that can be consumed and moved on, and not to think about it as a culture that needs to be sustained, that needs to be archived, right? And and the word that I use throughout the book needs to be carefully curated, right, for that sustainability.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the figure of the curator or the notion of curatorial power is something that comes through repeatedly either, you know, and not actually normally in the hands of cultural industries, intermediaries who do not have the best interests of, uh, you know, popular black culture and it, its careful curation at heart, right? Um, I, and one challenge that you kind of return to throughout the book is the uh, implications of shifts in curatorial power brought about by digitalization right that that's kind of a a touchstone throughout i wonder if you could chat about that slightly a little bit
0: yeah i, I mean i think sometimes we forget because it's so it's so easy now to access so much um you know there's a way in which black uh culture broadly defined is more visible and more accessible than it's ever been. I mean, it literally is, you know, at a finger's touch. Um, one of the things I don't think we pay enough attention to is that, you know, who and what, in fact, has the capacity, has the, the ability, and the capacity to hold all of this data, right? I mean, that that it is a literal kind of functional question, right? who can maintain all of this data? And and the reality is it's always going to be global corporations and institutions, right? You know, there there are really few black institutions that have the capacity to maintain and curate that level of, of data. And so, what that means is that now that the data is so, and, and by data, I'm not obviously talking about you know just the one and the zero in the sense that we think about data, but really thinking about culture more broadly manifested as 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 forms of data, you know, big black data, as I talk about you know in, in the intro to the book, you know, as as we grapple with the accessibility of this data, right, it it really means that we have to do additional work, right, and additional labor. So the one hand, you know, be able to curate this data where we can, right? where we see fit, where we can fit in, uh, and also do the work of naming the kind of cultural DNA from where it comes from. Um, I use in a kind of fleeting way the example of someone like Beyonce, right? Now, I don't spend a lot of time talking about her in the book, uh, but there's a way in which Beyonce historically has trafficked you know, in the archives of Black culture, right? Whether it's the obvious references to Josephine Baker might be obvious to us, not obvious to everybody, right? So she's pulling from these different kinds of forces, right? And, and remaking it in this world of, of Queen Bee. and And I think it's important that folks know where she's drawing this stuff from. To her credit, she's been very good right in terms of identifying the source material if you will not everybody is as good and, and has that level of integrity in terms of the places that they're drawing from to the extent that they even know what it is that they're drawing from
1: and, and i suppose obviously the a key touchstone here which again comes through in the book is um I guess sample culture quite broadly conceived right and this idea of a relationship with the archive that it does pay dues without kind of an over reverence and I think you you I'd be interested to hear you reflect a bit on that um on I guess yeah this interplay between um acknowledging where the material has come from without it becoming kind of overawing, And I think there's, there's a number of examples of, of in the book that you kind of raise where they seem to manage that quite well. Yeah, you know, Black
0: culture is rife with examples of, of sampling culture, right? We tend to talk about it most in the contemporary moment and around hip-hop. and And, and to be honest, we talk about it in the context of hip-hop Really, because the ownership of the source material, right, tends to be owned by these huge corporations, right? Who, who, you know, beginning in the early nineteen nineties, really on the one hand, criminalized the use of of some of this source material, and then erected these elaborate schemes, right, in terms of how much it would cost, right, to be able to use these things, right, and and what is necessitated in terms of hip hop culture producers in particular. Um, our strategies, right? Whether it's shop and screw and all kinds of other things, you know, as, as workarounds, right? This kind of uh, uh, inter- intellectual propertyization, right, of, of black music, right? So, so that's one, you know, contemporary example of it. But, you know, you go back to the 1940s and, and bebop artists are, are, are citing and sampling Tim Pan Alley tunes right in the middle of their songs as improvisational solos, right? You know, the the practice of blues songs, right? that get remade over and over again and refashioned for gen- different generations. You know, I talk about, you know, the relationship of, of Victoria Spivey's music um, you know to another blues artist and and he literally borrows right and 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 they recall right the conversation where he asks right I'm gonna do this to your song right and she's always like you know whatever he does right it, it can he can never replicate that moan of mine because that moan of mine is so personal right so you know it's rife with all these kinds of different examples and I think sampling for me is an important practice because it really is on the one hand ancestor worship, right? It opens a portal, you know, to an earlier history. You know, part of my interest, even in this work, you know, comes from listening to, you know, particularly the sample base, you know, producers of the 1990s, Pete Rock, um, Ali Shahid, Muhammad, you know, those generations of cats, right? You know, uh, you know, what's his name? Um, <laughs> Q-tip, you know, who all did de- delve deep right, DJ Premier, into this kind of soul jazz catalog, right, of the 60s and the 70s, right, and opened up a portal, right, for so many folks to not only consume this music, but also to build generation connections, right, with their fathers and their grandfathers, right, who who listened to that music, right? So it's this kind of place where hip-hop and jazz came together very palpably, really, you know, for five a five-year period. You know, so I'm a big supporter of those practices, you know, in that regard and particularly when there's ability to name and cite you know if not directly where the source material is from right because that's always a big conversation in hip-hop um, but also just to to name the cultural moments right that these things are being drawn from and i think we just simply do less of that work now you know i was surprised for instance in some of the initial responses. You know, not so much as the Kendrick Lamar album, but the first video that he did, which of course, you know, borrows liberally from Marvin Gaye's I Want You. And I was just surprised how many young folks hadn't heard, you know, the the original Marvin Gaye sample, right? Which, you know, it is an iconic piece of music from an iconic Black performer, right? In my mind, that's the kind of thing that, you know, should be a lingua franca, if you will, you know, within Black America at the very least,
1: yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um, and b- before we get any further, I also wanted to ask you a bit about your kind of method for this book. How, how did you go about writing it? Because there's such a huge amount of granular detail that underpins stitching together the kind of the micro, but also the macro, right? You're often going from these talking about interiority to huge kind of conjunctural discussions. Um, so I'd just be really interesting to hear how you went about doing the research and how you chose and also excluded the music that you, that you refer
0: to? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So, so there's a way in which I lived with this book for at least a decade, you know, before it was published. Um, The real intense writing of it, you know, really pretty much occurred between 2018 and, and, and 2020, you know, pandemic, of course, you know, put some of this stuff on, on, on the shelf for a little while, but, you know, for me, I'm always writing in bits and pieces and fragments <laughs> um, and, and some stuff will show up as kind of public facing pieces that I might do for publication or, or more than likely, you know, house on, on my own website, you know, as a way to kind of think out loud. Right. And, and as the project goes forward, I start to kind of pull these pieces together, you know, so the first chapter. You know, the chapter on Stacks, you know, as I mentioned, is something that, you know, has since up my first book, What the Music Said. Um, I was just fascinated with that question of what Stacks, you know, was, what it lost, what it became. Right. And, and my remembrance of Stacks is not the earlier Stacks. Right. But the Stacks of the Watch Deck Stacks era. Right. And, and I was just simply initially interested to figure out how do we go for from Jim and Estelle Right. The two white folks who found the label to Al Bell. Right. And watch Stacks. Right. Um, And so it was really on the one hand, just doing a kind of musical history of that period of time. And obviously there's great work already out there on Stacks. Right. And trying to find a way to bring something a little different to that. And for me, it was really looking at some of the artists that we don't pay a lot of attention to. Uh, You know, a kind of deeper read of the Staple Singers. You know, you have to talk about Isaac in some way, Um, but to be able to talk about the Soul Children, you know, a group that's also heavily sampled, right, in in hip hop culture. Um, The group that was most important for me to write about the Rance Allen group, right, simply because of where they start and and how Rance Allen, you know, was a fairly well-known, you know, gospel star. You know, at the time that I'm writing this book, I, I I didn't tell this story in the book, but I was traveling actually to give a talk at the Stacks Museum, probably 2018. Um, and as I'm flying, you know, out of dorm, right, Raleigh, dorm to Memphis, you know, there's Rance Allen, right, getting on the same airplane, right, and and I'm, um, you know, I'm telling them, you know, what I'm actually going to give a talk at Stacks about you, right? And, and and he was, you know, glad to hear that this very early part of his career, you know, still resonated in some ways. Um, some of the other chapters, like, you know, the second chapter, you know, which looks at this experimental novel about by Ricardo Cortez Cruz, you know, I first taught that novel shortly after, his, after its pop- publication in the late 1990s, and I always wanted to write about it, but I didn't know how to. Right. Again, I'm not a literary scholar, so I I wasn't going to use traditional literary um, uh, theory and and criticism. But as time went on um, and the magic of the Internet and the digital began to reveal itself to me, uh, what I realized what Ricardo Cortez Cruz was doing was that he had, in fact, written a pre-digital hypertext novel. Right. Where this short 125 pages, the characters primarily speak in song lyrics. Right. And and the job of the reader is to be able to go in deep. Right. Unlinked, uh, you know, the hypertext um, that aren't actual hypertext. Right. Because it's it's print. Um, And and for me, that was extraordinary. Right. Because it allowed me to recognize what he was trying to do and find another way in. Um, and so, and and then, and then, lastly, I'll you know I mentioned you know Chapter Four, which is a chapter on Aretha and Marvin. Um, I always felt as though we had given short shrift um, to Aretha Franklin's career prior to Atlantic. Um, you know, quite honestly, I find the work that she did collectively at Columbia uh, a little bit more satisfying and appealing than the stuff from Atlanta, one, because I grew up with so much of the stuff in Atlantic, but she is really doing some extraordinary things and taking extraordinary risks and covering an extraordinary range of material, you know, whether it's her covering, you know, Hank Williams Sr., <laughs> you know, as one example, or, or singing all of these Clyde Otis, you know, songs or, or being produced and, and arranged by Bobby Scott. Um, I wanted to talk about that work, and the best way to talk about it was her tackling of this concept of the American Songbook, right? This, you know, iconic archive of great American songs, right, that we typically associated with, you know, white Jewish songwriters, right, and, and white jazz vocalists, right, particularly Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and, and folks like that. And, and what did it mean for this 19, 20, 20-year-old 20 Black woman? black woman, to not only go into that archive and record these songs, but actually reclaim them and rename them in ways. So that, yes, she could sing Hank Williams and she could sing Tony Bennett. She could sing People, right, which she actually recorded at the same time that Streisand did, but no one heard her version, right, for another 30 years, how she could sing all of these songs, right, but none of those artists could sing an Aretha Franklin song. Um, And then Marvin Gaye, who at the same time, you know, comes into his career wanting to be Frank Sinatra, right? He wants to record his version of We Small Hours in the Morning, um, but he's at a company that needs to sell records, right? And he has a bunch of hit records and his brother-in-law, right, who owns the label is telling him, you ain't singing that stuff. And so he secretly, you know, begins to record these songs with Bobby Scott, who gives him seven songs in 1967. And he literally plays around with these songs, you know, for the next decade, you know, particularly once he creates his own studio, Marvin's Room. Right. And and Drake gives the studio a literal shout out. Right. In 2011, with the song, Marvin's Marvin's Room, which he recorded in Marvin's Room. Um, And I talk a little bit about that, you know, in the book. Um, But where he workshops these songs, right, and as the technology changes, what he's able to do with those songs changes. As he gets older and experiences a different kind of life, right, you know, deepening his experience, those songs change, right? And so, you know, as again, someone who's not trained as a musicologist, right, I can't tell folks, Right. Given my training, what they're hearing and why these notes are important, you know, shout out to the great Andrew Flory, you know, who as an in-depth musicologist, is doing extraordinary work on exactly these Marvin Gaye songs. And, And also my friend, you know, Harry Weinger, Um, at Universal Motown who made so many of these, you know, existing tracks available, you know, for public consumption, you know, that was the way that I could write about it. Um, But, you know, if there is a kind of patron saint to this book um, and its work, it's John O'Connor, you know, the, the, the British Canadian filmmaker um, smoking dog films, right. You know, who gets his start, you know, with a collective, the black audio collective in the early 1980s, um, and of course, Aconfor does this amazing film, you know, "The Last Angel in History," um, you know, which is really for me the defining metaphor of the book, right? This idea of a data thief, right? You know, which could be a DJ, could be a sampling box, right? It goes back and forth as to you know whether or not it's an actual person or a thing, but but this entity that is traveling across digital history. Right. And reclaiming aspects of black culture. Right. And putting it in its proper context, curating it and archiving it. Right. You know, it's literally stealing it. Hence the term data thief. Um, you know, it's a film that just blew my mind when I first saw it in the late 1990s. And I was happy enough to, you know, mature as a thinker, um, as a listener. Right. And more importantly, I think as a viewer. Right. Both in terms of watching moving moving images but also visual culture right to, to be able to write about you know this extraordinary work that a comfort has has laid down over the course of his career
1: yeah and i think if, if that's the kind of i think you said patron saint or whatever of, of this book i think also key there is your willingness on occasion whether where the archive is already ephemeral or patchy to imagine and 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 you, you know speculate slightly and and draw connections that aren't necessarily uh, totally there, but to kind of further enrich in the archive and I, I just i really that's something that I found really amazing and and refreshing about this, how you' uh, alongside all of the you know again granular documentary evidence of Yo these recordings and the, this workshopping or whatever, then occasionally there were kind of leaps of imagination that would just fully flesh out the story, uh, or not even the story, but kind of the point, I think. And yeah, I think that that's a fantastic aspect of the book as well. Thank you. Thank you. So, I mean, it, just to jump to chapter four, actually, where you, which you mentioned there, you, so you touched on you know Aretha Franklin reworking the great American songbook. I wonder if you could talk maybe about, the some of the implications that you draw from that about her the kind of approach to genre kind of crossing and reworking and what that kind of the, the politics, I guess, of that.
0: You know, we talk all the time and it was her mantra when she was alive. It's the way that we always described her as a queen of soul. And I actually feel that that is limiting in thinking about who she was and her contributions right to American music. Um, if not global music on some level. Um, I I think the only way to describe Aretha Franklin is as the greatest vocalist of the 20th century. Um, The range of material that she covers, um, how she takes on that material and remakes it as her own, um, you know, just as a passing moment, You know, Dionne Warwick is a bona fide star in the 1960s. Um, You know, she is, uh, as a solo, Black woman solo artist, the most successful Black woman solo artist of the 1960s, right? You know, everything that we think about Beyonce now that we thought about Whitney Houston in the 80s, that's who Dionne Warwick was in the first part of the 1960s. And for Aretha Franklin to be able to, to take on... Right, uh, Dionne Warwick, you know, first low key, and suddenly like with her remake or walk on by, but then you take a song like I Say a Little Prayer, right, which is this major hit, right, for Dionne Warwick, and then Aretha and Sissy Houston and them get in there, the sweet inspirations, and, and they're just playing around, right, just playing around with a little piano riff and, and different kinds of harmonies, and it's like there's no comparison between the two songs, right? What Aretha does is a different song. Right. You know, you hear Dion is like, this is nice. You hear Aretha and the Sweet Inspirations, and it's like, whoa, this. And she does that time and time again throughout her career. And it seems that, you know, her strategy, right? And and you know, this I lament that I never actually got a chance to talk to her and ask her about strategy, right, when she chose what she recorded and why. But she seemed always to be able to try different genres and styles of music in an attempt to achieve some level of mastery. And then once she achieved that level of mastery, she arethasized arethasized it, right, so that it became an aretha moment. You know, so, you know, Coco World, you know, which is a Hank Williams Sr. song, right? You know, which then gets covered, um, you know, by, by, by the great uh, Dinah Washington, right? You know, Aretha, of course, records her version on a tribute album to Dinah Washington, right? Dinah Washington is one of these people that she had to go through, right? Was a mentor of some sort when she was a girl, you know, coming to her father's house, you know, in Detroit. And she goes through Dinah to achieve a mastery of what Dinah Washington was singing and then goes on to something else. And Cold Cold World is such a great example of this, right? So in this one shot, right, she takes on Hank Williams, right, the king of the country blues, and then takes on, um, you know, Dinah Washington, the, the queen of the blues, right? And, and you know, creates this moment that you actually hear in Cold Cold World, the future of black music because you hear the future of Aretha, right? In that song. Right. And she just does that throughout her career and it continues on when she becomes famous. Right. You know, we all talk about amazing grace. Right. And, and, and I, I lamented, you know, when the film came out because I was deep in the book, right. When they finally released the film version of amazing grace um, and I was deep in the book at that point in time. And I, and I was, trying to figure out whether or I wanted to incorporate the film into the book, which I eventually I chose not really to do so. Um, and then I also, because I've been living with this soundtrack, right? This, this Aretha Franklin Amazing gray soundtrack, I, I would argue that with the exception of maybe the Jackson 5's Maybe Tomorrow album, is the album I have listened to the most in my life. Right, you know, beginning when my mother brought it home in 1973. Um, that, that's just the nature of my relationship to it. Um, and I remember lamenting not writing about it when the film came out because I was deep in the throes of the book. And I was like, I'll just wait, you know, to put all that stuff in the book. But the revelation to that album, you know, is really not that session. The revelation is her going to the Fillmore West a year earlier. Right, I mean that's actually where the idea for the Amazing Grace album is born, and watching Aretha Franklin go to the Fillmore West with that audience, which is primarily teenage and, and early twenty uh, white cats, you know, hippies as we would describe them as the time, long hairs, you know, if if you will, and introducing that audience. To the spirit of the black sanctified church. I, I mean, and you know, Billy Preston said it best, right? I mean, just think about first of all who she has on stage with her. You know, her her musical director is the great King Curtis, right? And 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 you know, this this was important for me on a personal level, right? As I write about in the book, you know, somewhere in this in 1971, I'm five years old and my parents take me to three concerts. They take me to see, you know, the Gene Terrell-led uh, Supremes at the Apollo. Um, my mother takes me to go see the Jackson 5 at Madison Square Garden. And together, right, my parents take me to see Aretha Franklin at the Apollo, right? The great week-long stand that she did to the Apollo in June of 1971 that stayed with me for my whole life, right? So that when I finally hear as a kid, live at the Fillmore West, right, which which was part of that same tour. When I hear Amazing Grace the year later, right, I already have a personal relationship with live Aretha, right, that's not mediated by recordings, right? But, you know, going back to, to live at the Fillmore West, right, here we have King Curtis as a musical director. You know, uh, you, you got Billy Preston playing keyboards for her. Like, it's like a who's who in the band. And as Billy Preston described those three nights of the Fillmore West, he, as he classically said that, you know, the hippies flipped the fuck out. <laughs> um, Cause it was just something extraordinary and magic about that moment. And what was also extraordinary is that she wasn't just bringing that crowd to her. She met them on their own, their own terrain. Right. So when you hear her version of Stephen Stills, love the one you with, or bread to make it with you, right? She's building a common ground. And I would argue, particularly would love the the way you're with it in the second night, not the first night, you know, she just takes the song and takes it elsewhere, right? There were folks who hear Let It Be, you know, during those two nights, you know, because she had recorded it a year earlier, you know, before it was even known that, that it was going to be on the Beatles album because she had got a copy of it, probably from Billy Preston. <laughs> right. You know, so she's she's taken on. Right. You know, again, her cover of Bridge Over Troubled Water. Right. So she's taken on Lyndon and McCartney. She's taken on Paul Simon. Right. The who's who are these singer songwriters. Right. She, of course, had been gifted. Right A major hit from Carol King, who's also emerging as one of these figures in this kind of moment. She's becoming this figure who is covering the greatest writers and composers of the era and adding something distinct and unique to it, right and And part of what she's adding to it is the idea of the black sanctified church. And, and they met last night, you know, Spirit in the dark, right, which is a, a, a re, I would argue is a original gospel recording. Right. It's not about church. It clearly is about spirituality. Right. And she's going through these church runs, right? Introducing this audience to what a church experience is like. And then pulls Ray Charles out of nowhere. Right. And and he shows up on stage and and two of the greatest progenitors, right? Examples of soul music are on stage together at the same time. And they take the songs even elsewhere. Right. That's different than what Aretha imagined. Right. You know, listening to, you know, Ray Charles get up there, you know, she's like, get behind, you know, get behind the keyboard. He's like, I know this song. <laughs> I don't know how to play this. Right. right? This, this ain't really my style. Right. And, and they figure out a way to come together and create something out of it. Um, And, you know, I mentioned Carol King a second ago. You go to Amazing Grace, that album. And when she does that mashup of You've Got a Friend and Precious Lord. Um again, elevating Carol King, you know, in her rightful place alongside the Lennon and McCartneys and the uh, Bacharach and Davids, right? And the Paul's the Simon and Garfunkels, right? Um, but doing so also lifting up um you know the great you know, black. Father of spirituals, right? You know, Thomas Dorsey, a father of gospel music, Thomas Dorsey. And, and saying in that one moment, not only is Carol Queen King great, right? But I'm going to elevate Thomas Dorsey on the same level, right? And most of y'all don't know who he is. But because I'm recording him, right? You should know that he's important and as important as Carol King.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: I think there's something really interesting there, isn't there, about the kind of the politics of citation as a kind of, yeah, as a kind of solidarity in a way of, I guess, to bring back curation, you know, that makes Aretha Franklin, as well as everything else in that context, being a kind of curator for the ends of like, yeah, uplifting people that she sees as undervalued. And and I suppose that's something that comes out very much throughout a number of these chapters, uh, similarly to do with the kind of the cover as an act of claiming ownership, while also uplifting and and using citation as a kind of politics, so is there something maybe lost today when covering? Certainly seems to be much less prevalent in kind of contemporary pop recordings.
0: Yeah, you know, I you know my my issue with covering these days, right? And 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 I'd love a good cover. <laughs> you know, my I, I have these playlists you know, that have gotten me through life over the last 15 years, right? Especially in the digital moment, right? Because literally you can put anything in a playlist, you know, in ways that a 60-minute a TDK or L, you couldn't contain all the things that you wanted. Um, but, you know, I have these playlists of like these different versions of uh, Marvin Gage just to keep you satisfied, right? And, and it's amazing how many people have tried, you know, their hands at this or Bridge Over Troubled Water, as another example, right? So I appreciate a good cover and the best covers are folks who can maintain and affirm why the song and the lyrics and the composition were important in the first place, but then also contribute to it in a way that that furthers the greatness of the tune. I don't see, think we see a lot of that now. I think what we see now are people you know, who can speculate what their audience knows or doesn't know. Right. And do a cover. Right. And, and move on. Right. You know, so, you know, my, my, I, I've taken a lot of shots over the last couple of months, you know, with, with Silk Soul. Um One, you know, because I, I don't necessarily find the project all that interesting. Right. And, and, you know, I'm, 56 years old, right? So why would I, right? It's not really intended for me, right? And and honestly, you know, I I understand the commercial rationale for it, right? You know, Bruno Mars, who, you know, is a gifted mimic, (laughs) let me just say that way, right? Extraordinary, actually, in his ability to mimic the music that he grew up listening to. Right. So you hear him and you hear shades of New Jack Swing and you hear shades of Teddy Riley. Right. You know what he grew up listening to. Right. Um, But he's also someone who needed some street cred. Right. And Anderson Park gives him street cred. Anderson Park, who individually is an extraordinary artist in my regard, in my sense, songwriter, drummer, obviously, but also as a vocalist. You know, he needed some pop shine. Right. So the project, you know, I understand the commercial reasons for them doing it. Right. But then when they do a song like Love Train, uh, and, you know, and I I understand I'm an old man, right? So I have a different relationship with this, right? But, like, I listen to Confunctions' Love Train maybe three times a month that will randomly pop up on one or two, you know, playlists, right? So when I hear Silk Sonic singing, I'm like, why would I want to hear Silk Sonic sing it straight, Right? yeah the production is better better instrumentation I get that right but you know why would I do that if I can just go and listen to the original um and, and I think it puts you know some of the older artists in a, in a really interesting space right because I'm sure on the on a certain level Michael Cooper would love for folks more folks just to listen to can right uh, but he also knows that no one isn't right and the fact that silk Sonic gives him a shout out, is important right i'm sure frankie beverly felt the same way you know about you know beyonce doing before i let go right though you know i refuse to listen to the beyonce version i'm just it's it's not the same right there's a community communal aspect of before i let go right that that just simply doesn't get replicated, right? As as and I understand what Beyonce was trying to do, but you go to a black barbecue, black cookout, whatever your parlance is, and Frankie Beverly and Mays is before I get let go comes on. And everyone from the seven-month-old who's just learning how to walk, to the 92-year-old who can never who 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 can't walk, right? Is connected through that song, right? And and there's so few examples of black music now that do that. Right? That is, you know, I would argue the last black song that cut across multi-generations. Um, so again I appreciate the samples right but for me I in, in the in really the covers but I need you artists to add their own kind of take on it to make it something unique right that heightens why the composition was important in the first place why the song was critical in the first part right but to really articulate it in the way that takes it further
1: and, and I suppose is this in some ways what you're what one of the challenges of the archive, right? The challenges of hyper accessibility is that, you know, if I was an artist today and I had access to one of those playlists, you can listen to 10, 15 covers of a tune, you know, where else is there to go? I know this is a problem in jazz as well, that the jazz musicians feel like, how are you going to approach Cherokee or whatever else? Because not only can you hear Charlie Parker's, but you can hear every version done every, every year until 19, you know, whenever, um, yeah, and I just wonder if that kind of that's one of the issues and I think that's you know, that's a problem in the sense
0: that so many contemporary and I'll use R and B an example. So many R and B artists have become nondescript. Right. Because as a jazz artist, you know, as just an example, and it's a reason why covers work the way they do in jazz, every horn player, right, just has a different tone. <laughs> Right. There's a reason why we know why that's Wynton Marsalis versus that's Miles Davis versus that's Clifford Brown, right? It's just three examples of trumpet players, right? You know, so you can always bring your own tone to that, right? Pianists have different kind of sensibilities around rhythm. Um, we don't allow for that kind of diversity, I think, in pop music. Right. Pop music becomes this thing that we have a sound that's really popular, someone who sounds really popular, let's find 10 other people right, who can re- replicate that popular sound. And more importantly, that we can pay less than the person who created the sound in the first place. Right, So the, the economic stakes are as such in, say, popular music and R&B, you know, that it's worthwhile for companies to find people who sound like other people. Right. As opposed to really creating a lane where folks can be different um, and sound different and bring a kind of uniqueness to their sound. Right. And, 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 and quite honestly, the people who have had sustainable lasting careers over the last 25 years are really people who've created, you know, vocal sounds that just aren't, you know, you just can't replicate them. Right. Anybody can't do those Beyonce ruts right there's something very very unique in in her own lane right and that's the reason why we talk about her the way that we do
1: and and i think one thing that the book does really well actually is um you, you never shy away from that kind of the hard-nosed economics in in, this, in the kind of eras that you look at as well, you know, in the soul period, it's, you know, Motown and Stax, you know, we're also trying to find their clones and trying to find, you know, someone who could be the next Diana Ross. And I think you highlight quite a lot of these sorts of figures as well, but how the artists you focus on find a way through those kind of economic constraints to be singular and to, to be expressive. Um, and so, yeah, I think, Yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean, uh, definitely, you know,
1: with the Stacks chapter, you know, for me,
0: ultimately, that that stood the Stacks story is a story about valuation. Um, You know, the reason why they lose the archive in the first place is because, you know, Atlantic and, and Warner and other folks undervalued the archive. Right. Even as they then took on the archive and immediately generated economic benefits from it. Right. You know, as as much as we think about how great Otis Redding was as an artist on Stax when he was alive, much of the artist Otis Redding that we've come to know and talk about is stuff that was released after he died. Now, Beginning with Doc on the Bay, you know, which literally was released a month after he died. Um, so even as they were not willing to pay value for stacks, right, that were, that would allow this, to maintain its archive, they didn't immediately benefit from that particular archive, right? And, and that's the story, you know, obviously of pop, popular music more broadly, right? But it's the story of Black culture, right? Undivided in this moment, or, you know, I've been struck in, in, you know, and particularly in talking about this particular archive, you know, Ernie, Ernie Barnes is... Uh, painting Sugar Shack right just got sold for 15 million dollars right and it's like I'm not sure Ernie Barnes made 15 million dollars on all of his paintings while he was alive and clearly no one was trying to give him 15 million dollars you know for that painting when he did it I would argue collectively when he was alive you know, not only didn't Ernie Barnes make fifteen million dollars on that on that out on that painting, Marvin Gaye didn't make fifteen million dollars on the album that features it as cover art. Um, so you got this thing where the art is in the case of Ernie Barnes, right, who was just seen as this kind of ghetto black visual artist, right? You know, doing stuff that wasn't enough of of any value in terms of high art. So his artistry is diminished while he's alive, right? And now, a decade after his death, right, singular paintings are going for $15 million. I and mean, we could have the same conversation about Basquiat, though Basquiat, you know, in many ways got much more, you know, uh, affirming of his art while he was alive. But the prices that his art has gone from afterwards, right, no, his art was diminished in that moment in comparison to what the value of what it looks like now. And I think that's just a broad metaphor for Black culture.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Um, and I think yeah, th- those stories do crop up a, a number of times in the book that to, to kind of hammer that home. Looking at chapter three, where you discuss mourning and remembrance, you know, specifically in hip-hop, in part, this involves some kind of reflections on the ambivalence of, video, of the video camera and video technology as a tool of documentation and surveillance in hip-hop and African-American life. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about about this chapter.
0: Yeah, you know, so... Having lived through the early 1990s and and the beating of Rodney King, um, the videotaping of it, um, remembering how significant that visual was, right, for folks in 1991, right, as was the visual of the shooting death of Latasha Harlins, right, shortly thereafter. And how we're now in this moment where we've been desensitized. Right. even before George Floyd from from seeing black people killed on video. Um, and so on the one hand, I wanted to track our practices of reaction and mourning to these killings right over this 30 year period, right, how the culture responded to this earlier moment, right in the case of hip hop, right and not just around these kind of very you know popular and signature shootings of, of black folks. But also in terms of losses within the culture in that particular moment, and and I you know and I think we tend to think about the hashtags and Twitter in this moment as something new, and I really wanted to make the argument that that these practices of mourning in this digital moment, right? If we go back generations after generations, right, we see other mourning practices that, that are part of the culture. Um, the what Martin Luther King signaled for the culture in his death and the number of artists who felt the need to, to you know add a voice to that morning right We know obviously very well you know Nina Simone, but much less the reaction of say a Max Roach or, or someone like that. Um, you know this didn't make it into the book but but even thinking about the jazz artists who memorialize um, you know the the, the the killing of George Jackson and, and the Attica moment more broadly. You know, that, that we forget about in the context of the culture. And then to go back and see these other ways in which artists attempted to mourn losses. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things that I never expected to find, right, the, one of the biggest surprises I found in the archive was, in fact, a Sam Cooke cover album of Billie Holiday songs, right? And, and, and I'll just be honest it's not good, <laughs> right? You know, if, if there were ever two <laughs> artists, right? You know, because because this isn't yet the change is going to come, Sam Cooke. I would argue that he gets to that, right? Obviously, because of the influence of Dylan, right? But, but you know, because he's also trying to tackle these Billie Holiday songs six years earlier, right? You know, he can't conceive of that, you know, in 1959, right? So, so this album is not very good. Right. But the tribute to her was important for him. Right. And, and the argument I make, you know, in the book is that, you know, he knew he couldn't pull off. Right. Billie Holiday. Right. But he also knew Billie Holiday was not someone who could easily translate to mainstream and wide audiences. Right. That, that she was you know, there was something unique about her that was intended for a much more discreet audience right, than the mainstream would ever allow, but that his covers of her music, right, was a platform that would allow, just to be frank, white audiences, right, to be able to hear and listen to Billie Holiday in ways that was much more accessible to them than Billie Holiday would have been more directly. Uh, But again, in, in many ways for him, that's a tribute to who she was, and why she was of value to him, just as it was when, you know, Barry Gordy decides after Sam Cooke's death that, that it's not Marvin Gaye who's going to do the Sam Cooke tribute album. It's not the four tops of the temptations that are going to do the Sam Cooke tribute. Then it's going to be the Supremes, right? So because Sam Cooke represented a crossover move to the Copacabana and all these kinds of things, that Barry Gordy had envisioned for the Supremes, right so it's a tribute to the path of sam cook as opposed to the music of sam cook in that regard
1: yeah and i think that um the whole section actually on the kind of slightly strange uh marriage of the uh, of morning and tribute albums with the commercial imperative and motown's kind of um Mary Gordy's real understanding of the bottom line, I guess, uh, is, a, is a really, a really interesting section about, and and again, by highlighting the ambivalence there of how these things can still be powerful documents of, of yeah. mourning and, and remembrance, right? Yeah,
0: you know, the couple of things from that chapter, one that I ultimately didn't write about and the one that I did, um, I, I would argue that the centrepiece of that chapter is, is Danny Boy. Um, and the first time, and it was an old English professor who, um, and we were in class talking about black music. This is, you know, when I was in grad school, um, and he mentioned Jackie Wilson's "Danny Boy," right? And and I was someone who thought that I knew Jackie. Well, you know, your love's lifting me higher than all the LA kind of stuff, right? To be loved, and 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 I finally listened to Jackie Wilson's, you know, "Danny Boy," and it's like, wow. <laughs> Where what is the context in which this black man from Detroit is singing this Irish hymn? Um and does what he does with it, right? And then you go into the archive, it's like, well, hell, how, how many black artists are singing this, right? Sam Cook sang a version of it, right? The the one that is most compelling and in comparison to to, you know, Jackie Wilson is Pan the bell and the bluebells, you know, singing this song, right? So I wanted to write about what a song like that might have meant collectively to the black community, right? As a broader sense of a morning song, right? In in the absence of one that might exist in the tradition at that moment, right? As I also talk about the interesting dynamics between, you know, the the competition between what it means for Jackie Wilson to sing that as the headliner. Right, and for the bluebells to sing that lower down right and in the way that you know, as I read it, you know it seems as though you know Wilson wanted to punish them right through an act of sexual violence right for for taking his limelight for for his song and his and his top billing, um, but the other pieces I didn't write about, um because at some point, I had to decide, okay, this book isn't really about me. Um, but it's a song by Pete Rock and, and C.L. Smooth They reminisce over you, right? And, and this is really the moment where the idea of collective generational mourning, right, for me became more broad, right? It, it's a song that I absolutely love. I often it as for me, the, you know, hip hop's first mourning song, right? In, in that moment and created a whole tradition afterwards, right? Obviously with, with Tupac's death and Biggie's death after that. Um But I was always fascinated by the sample, which I, you know, after years and before Google and all this kind of stuff, what identifies Tom Scott's, you know, cover of a Jefferson Airplane song to make it even more bizarre. Right. And and in a different world, if I was writing a different book, right, it'd be a whole chapter on the layers of this song. You know, the Jefferson Airplane original, the Tom Scott cover and then you know, where large professor, you know, tries to do something with this song and can't quite do anything with it and then gives the song to Pete Rock, right? And then it becomes a reminisce over you. But there was an episode of The Boondocks. Um, Riley was here uh, where the youngest brother, Riley, is doing this graffiti art around, extraordinary like artistic thing. No one believes it's him, right? Because they just think about him as a kid that's tagging up stuff. And so finally, he paints this portrait of his dead parents, um, and so everybody recognized, oh, it was him. And and then the scene, you know, who's teaching him uh, to paint is this caricature of Bob Ross, right? The PBS. Afro guy, you know, who's teaching people how to paint on public television, right? And they're driving away in a car as the police are trying to get them, right? And and Bob Ross is like gangster in this episode, right? Because he pulls out his 45 and all this kind of stuff. But as that scene is playing out in this animated cartoon, they start to play the Tom Scott song. And for me, it was an extraordinary moment because... There's only a a small subset of people that would have connected that Tom Scott song to the sample from They Reminisce Over You to the larger theme of that episode, right, which is, you know, Riley mourning his dead parents. And for me, it's like that level of intertextuality, right, really gets at the kind of stuff that I wanted to talk about in the project
1: yeah i mean that 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 is a really good example that would have been a great chapter (laughs) (laughs) because i think one thing that's really fascinating about the the book as well is how kind of fluidly it moves in time period right because because i think every chapter it it moves between kind of a discussion in the kind of soul era hopping into hip-hop and then hopping further back and it feels entirely natural because that's, that's how contemporary culture works and that's how pop music, is, especially the black pop music, has really worked. And so it feels like the kind of register in which the book is written reflects the, the medium that it's, it's speaking to, I think. And, and I, I think that's a, a good example as well, really. That touched on something I wanted to ask you about before actually in the start of the book you talk about um the challenges posed by the contemporary archive to the black cultural critic invested in the continued work of mystification and so i just wanted to ask you about mystification
0: you know i i worry about particularly in this moment when so much stuff is accessible um giving away the tools of the trade (laughs) um I think the work of really good critics, regardless of genre or or who they are in terms of their background, I think the job of a a good critic is to mystify art, to add to the mysticism and the questions around art. um, First of all, to think about criticism as a form of art in and of itself, but as a critic, not so much to answer all the questions, but to raise more questions in the art. And I don't think we do enough of that, generally speaking, in cultural criticism in this moment. Um, and I definitely don't see enough of that amongst uh, Black criticism in this moment, right? I, I think about, and there are a lot of ways to, to go about that, but you know, I think about, again, the Kendrick Lamar album, and, and just that video and, and people who are doing pieces basically to connect all the dots. Right? You know, I love close reading, right? I came out of a tradition of close reading. I, I can appreciate close reading with anybody, right? But close reading in the absence of actual narrative, right? And, and a speculation about why this is important. Um, to me, is not useful criticism, right? It's it's dead-end criticism, right? It's criticism that it's ending the conversation instead of extending the conversation. So when I talk about, you know, the need of critics to mystify art, right, it's about extending the conversation, right, as opposed to to ending it.
1: Yeah, I mean... I think that's that's a, a really, really great way of framing it. I think, you know, asking more questions rather than trying to answer or spot all the, all the connections. Um, I mean, there, there's so much more to talk about. There's so much music in here to listen to, but I, you've been really generous with your time. Um, I wondered, I've asked a couple of people this, actually. Are there any specific tracks that you'd want listeners to this podcast to listen to coming away from this before they read your book?
0: Uh, Definitely Rant Rant Allen's Up Above My Head um, is is one of those tracks. Aretha Franklin's Cold, Cold World. Um, You know, I won't pick one song from Marvin Gaye, but if you can get a copy of his Vulnerable album um, to just hear the extraordinary work that he does with these Bobby Scott charts, you know, trying to become you know, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> um, I spend some time in the last chapter, right? Which in, in the last chapter is really a ride. Um, it, it's I often use the last chapters of my book as a portal to the next project, right? Not, maybe not the next immediate project, but a product project down the road. Um, and I often like to use the last chapters as the chapters where I articulate all that I've learned in the process. Um, and definitely the, the fifth chapter of this book does that. Um, but I spent some time towards the end of the fifth chapter talking about Jimmy Scott. Um, and, and again, you know, whether it's Jimmy Scott's Day by Day, you know, which is featured in the Denzel Washington film Fences, or the the folks who live on the hill, um, those are, you know, tracks that I would definitely suggest people should listen to.
1: Amazing. I mean, and you, you kind of gesture towards it there, but w- what's next? What are you working on now?
0: So, you know, a bunch of things I'm thinking about. I I really want to do a project that looks at some of these soul man figures of the 1970s, Um, but that next tier. Right. So so not Marvin Gaye and Curtis Mayfield and all the folks that we should know, but folks like Luther Ingram, um, Walter Jackson, (laughs) DJ Rogers. Right. You know, folks that we might describe as black famous you know who who never really crossed over to the mainstream and and I and part of my argument is that one of the reasons why they didn't is because they represented um certain kinds of ambivalences and anxieties within black America that for them to become more mainstream would raise questions about black America right so Billy Preston is really the one good example right they, they, we really have not done the kind of work that needs to be done on Billy Preston given his impact on the culture broadly, right? Whether it's as the fifth Beetle and, and his own career and the places where, you know, he came up apprentice, you know, being an apprentice with James Cleveland, right. With Ray Charles, right. You know, not a whole lot of people can talk about that kind of level of, of relationship. Um, so that's one of the projects, the most pressing musical project, at least that, that I'm thinking about, you know, in the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like there's there's so much to be done there. That's that's really absolutely so, absolutely <laughs> yeah. I look forward to reading it. Well yeah, thanks so much for your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Gamma.